All right, well, let's get started, and I'll uh, open us with a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we do give you thanks um, for our mothers, for the gift of those who gave us life and uh, who have been your co-creators in that way. Lord, what a blessing and what a joy it is on this day and every day to celebrate our moms. And Lord, we thank you uh, for your church, which is also the mother that brings us forth, um, spiritually speaking, into this world. And we pray, Lord, that as we uh, attend to your word this morning, that you would give us a deeper appreciation for the way that you've been at work in your church and among the body of believers through the ages and the way that through your word, you continue to give birth to new believers. Bless our time together as we study it and enrich us with a deeper understanding and appreciation of your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, there's Chip, not a mother, but uh, glad to have you, Chip. Uh, even still. <laughs> and uh, so today we are in Acts chapter 8, and we've got two really stirring stories. We're going to spend most of the time with the second one, but the first one is interesting in its own right. So we're picking up in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. So um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up um, to Acts 8 as we pick up uh, with the story of Simon the Magician. All right, I'll read. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. All right, um, number one on your handout, I'm sharing the screen there, you should be able to, uh, to see it, is amazing, or number two, I guess, amazing grace is greater than amazing magic. So such an interesting anecdote. And the first thing we have to recognize is that magic is not something new. Penn and Teller did not invent this. Or uh, what's the other guy that always disappears himself? Uh, David Copperfield. Is it David Copperfield or is that the Charles Dickens? Maybe I've just got Charles Dickens on the mind today. Um, so, David Copperfield. Uh, okay. Well, yes. Um, so magic is not a modern invention. Magic has been with us for thousands of years. And I think the simplest way of understanding it is it's people basically co-opting co supernatural powers for other purposes. And uh, I've mentioned recently, I'm reading the Harry Potter stories right now, okay, uh, where it's really interesting to see how do they handle this magic. And, you know, it has this kind of, of power where it seems like it, you know, they don't really reference God in it. And, you know, I'm not somebody who says you should not read Harry Potter, it's evil or something like that. But it's interesting to see how um, it, magic kind of takes on its, a life of its own. And it's understandable how that would happen if somebody was able to wield some kind of seemingly supernatural powers, people are going to, going to follow. So you've got this guy, Simon the Magician, and people have been following, following him. They've been calling him Simon the Great, right? I don't know if he was accompanying a circus or what, but he had a following. People were looking to him. But what prevails over the message or the miracles of Simon the Great is the amazing grace of the gospel and the way that it's manifest in and through um, those early Christians. 
And it's really a, a remarkable thing. And it must have, I mean, we, we can tell, it really took Simon himself aback that, wait a second, there's a power here that exceeds even what I'm able to offer. Um, and just a, a couple of verses, you know, this is a, uh, a recurring theme in the New Testament of how the power of God, um, while sometimes it gets manifest in those signs and wonders, it really comes through the word of God and through the message. So you think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was a power in his message, a persuasive power in the word itself. And then look at 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verses 18 to 21. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So in these famous verses from 1 Corinthians, Paul really sets up the gospel, the message of the cross, the word of the cross, over and against the, the wisdom and the, the signs and wonders of this world. If that's where you're going to look in order to, to base your faith and base your confidence, it's always going to leave you wanting. But when you look instead to the word of the cross, foolishness as it may seem, that's where you find the true power, persuasive message of, of God. So this is just another really um, compelling instance of the way that the gospel and the word of God continues to grow as it even is able to um, convert or compel Simon the magician. So we're going to continue with this story, but before we do, any, any thoughts or reflections um, on that first movement of the, the story about Simon the magician? And uh, remind you too that in your participant um, window, if you open that up, there's a place you can. Um, there's a button that says "Raise Hand," so you can use that if you like, um, or you can type in the chat, or you can just um, call out. Yeah, uh, Chip, are you raising your hand or are you just waving? I'm just demonstrating a a retro way to raise your hand. Oh yeah, <laughs> a manual, you might say. And it works, so and that works too. <laughs> Manual hand waving also also works. Um, but for those of you who don't can't see your screen, it won't work as well if you just do an old-fashioned hand raising. I won't be able to see it. All right, let's continue with the story, kind of part two, where it takes an interesting turn. So picking up at verse fourteen. <clears throat> now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Remember, Samaria, these were the folks who were kind of the heterodox ones. They were outside the pale of normal, conventional, orthodox Jewish belief, but now they are being brought to the faith. Well, so they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly, this is one of the proof texts that Roman Catholics will use to justify their view of confirmation as a separate sacrament. And the idea is that, well, in baptism, you receive grace, that first infusion of grace, but it's only at confirmation when um, the, uh, the bishop or you know, presiding uh, pastor 
lays hands on you and that you are really confirmed and kind of receive an added measure of, of grace, basically. Um, this is one of the verses they would point to because basically what we're seeing in this instance is almost a two-step kind of progression where they had been baptized, but then it takes the apostles coming, laying their hands on them to, for them to receive the Holy Spirit. I do not think, it should not surprise you to learn, that this is normative for the church or that it's suggesting something like a sacramental view of, of confirmation. I do think that it's underscoring um, the continued role that the apostles had in the community, but I don't think we can um, extract too much from this one verse into a whole kind of um, doctrine or theology to confirmation, um, doing something in addition to baptism. But if you have further questions or thoughts on that, we can, we can talk about it. All right, verse 18. So now when Simon saw that the spirit was giving through the laying, given through the laying out of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an interesting little allusion here, and I'm not sure if Luke intended it on purpose or not, but the language that Simon uses at the end there, in verse 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It echoes and seems to allude to a famous uh, villain from the Old Testament. Can any of you uh, think of who that might be or who that might have reminiscences of? Doom. Oh, Saul. Not Saul, although um, Saul definitely turns himself into a, a villain in some way. Stephen Karen. Um, suggest that was as the, well. Was it the, the uh, Pharaoh? Pharaoh, yes. So, yes, yes Chip, well done. Points? I get points, don't I? You do get points. Plus 1,000 to Chip. <laughs> uh, may your silver perish with you, Chip, that you thought you could buy the kingdom of God with your points. Oh, now, uh, nice yeah. move. So, Pharaoh, this is very similar to what Pharaoh says to Moses. Um, he's pray to the, pray for me to the Lord. He doesn't say it at first. I mean, at first he's just really standoffish, but as it goes on, he gets to a place where he says, pray for me to the Lord that, that, um, these plagues would be delivered from us. And so it, I don't know if Luke is intending this or not, but there may be a, a little bit of an allusion to that where Simon, we should see Simon the magician as kind of like a Pharaoh character who thinks that he can wield um, his own powers because there are also magicians there um, at the Exodus, right? This, and they were going toe-to-toe -to -toe, um, with, with Moses as he was um, being the instrument of all of those signs and wonders then. Be that as it may, um, the, the big takeaway for me um, in these verses, well, two things, and uh, let me share my screen once again. So number three on your handout, the gift of God cannot be bought. Okay, now you guys know this, of course, already, but it bears repeating, and it's something that um, not only at the time of the scriptures, but through the ages, people have thought, okay, how, how can I somehow buy off God? Because when you think about it, what were, at the time of the Reformation, what were indulgences, but a sort of uh, system of trying to buy God off? 
And you know, Luther and the other reformers were saying in so many words, um, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Um, but as the prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That interesting paradox that Isaiah puts it, come, buy without money and without price. Um, or again, famous verse from Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It can't be bought. Okay? It can't be bartered. It can only be received in faith as the free gift, the free grace of, of God. In fact, this, um, uh, let me, uh, I'll stop the share here again. Um, this uh, action of Simon, this attempt to, uh, to purchase the gift of God became a, uh, lend, Simon lended his name to what was called a heresy called simony. Um, so just the word Simon plus a Y. Um, which is uh, the technical definition of it is trying to purchase an ecclesiastical office with with money, and this was a huge problem in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages especially. And uh, Dante features simony in the Inferno among the uh, various and sundry sins that get people down into hell. Um, simony was one that Dante especially railed against. And I mean, a case can be made that Dante was kind of a forerunner of Luther. He, he was really advocating for reform among the church. And so simony was, uh, was one of those heresies that he really spoke against. Um, the Emery's asked, why did Peter say neither part nor lot? Did lot infer a future involve, uh, involvement. So this is, let me find the um, verse again. Yeah, so verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Um, I think it could imply the future future involvement, but also, um, and throughout the book of Acts, when they, this, the in, inheritance language, and that's what it means with lot here, is um, it has a future thrust, but also a present reality. So, for example, in um, Acts chapter 26, if you want to flip there real quick, um, it's a, another place where Paul will be recounting his conversion, uh, which we'll get into next, next week. Um, let's see. So, Acts, this is Acts 26. So, Saul is speaking, but he's recounting what Jesus said to him. Um, and, well, look at verse 17, uh, verse, verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I've appointed you for this purpose, Jesus says, um, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn back from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place or a lot, an inheritance, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So it's, uh, it has that, that future hope, but it's also a present, a present promise. So I would say it's kind of a, a both and in that respect. In, uh, in the NIV translation of Acts 8.21, it says you have no part or share yes. in this ministry. So I think that's a little more clear than the word lot. Yes, right. Right. It's sort of, I mean, it's sort of like saying um, to use the language of lot or share. Um, you know, it's like having a... a having a lot at the RV park or the campground. That's a, I realize that's a crude analogy, but it's, 
you know, do you, do you have a spot or to go to the gospel from today, John 14, do you have a room in the father's house? And uh, I, I, Peter's essentially, I mean, speaking this word of law to Simon and calling him to repentance that right now, if Simon were to come to the kingdom of God, he's going to see a no vacancy sign, right? He is not, there will be no place in the inn for him until he repents and turns um, in order to uh, receive blessing and place among the people of God. Um, okay, it just seemed redundant a lot and share it were the same. Well, and that um, many times uh, the scriptures do speak in a way that seems kind of redundant too, especially in the Psalms, where it'll say the same kind of concept in two different terms, just sort of deepening, I think, the, the meaning of it. So very good. Other uh, questions or comments on the story of Simon here? In uh, our Bible, it, on the notes, it talks about, and maybe I'm reading this wrong, it says, Simon, in early literature, the sorcerer, Simon Magnus, Magus, was, is described as an archeretic of the church and the father of Gnostic teaching. Right. Yeah. So this is something I came across in my, my study this week as well, that Simon is regard, was regarded by um, some of the early church fathers as the arch heretic, the uh, kind of the, the founder of heretics. Um, that may suggest, as Stephen, Stephen Karen asked, which we knew how that ended. Um, I don't think we know for sure how it ended, but certainly the, um, the interpretation that follows from early Christians seems to suggest if they know, and maybe it's in Eusebius or another one of the church historians, um, but uh, it seems to suggest that he went on to, um, yeah, basically to, to be a heretic to have just enough of the truth to be dangerous, right? This is basically what heretics were. They weren't people who were just, you know, advocating for, you know, worship of Satan or something like that. It was people who had an element of the truth, um, but then, you know, didn't, didn't have the, the genuine article. And Simon may have ended up being like one of those. So it's an interesting, uh, an interesting comment. Simon Magnus, Simon the Great. Any other um, questions or, or reflections on this story? Okay. Yeah. Oh, Pete, go ahead. You got to un unmute yourself, Pete. There you go. About now. Yep, you're good. Can you hear me now? I can hear okay. you. Okay. So, I mean, there, there just uh, appears this differentiation between the baptism in Christ and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I know um, those of a Pentecostal persuasion point at texts like this to draw the differentiation and, and really the, the problem I have with it, besides not understanding it, right. uh, is that it's created a class system in the Christian church. Yeah. And I don't know if you could just respond to that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. So isn't it interesting that this, this verse will be used both by Roman Catholics and by Pentecostals or Charismatics, both to their own ends, but they'll both point to this, the Catholics to establish a, a a sacramental teaching of confirmation, Pentecostals of a kind of two-step baptism of, you know, uh, water baptism, baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit. And I think, you know, that's both wrong. I think it, in both cases, it's reading too much into this one instance. And part of it is just a principle of interpretation or hermeneutics is the technical term for it. How are we going to move from interpretation to application? 
So when we read this, there's different ways to um, read it and see what is the significance of this. Now, those are two ways that people find derive significance from it, that it's telling us about confirmation or baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think it's more underscoring the vital role that the apostles continued to have in the ongoing ministry of the church and the way that, frankly, they were still sorting out what does it look like? How do, how do we do this faithfully? And um, that, uh, that, as we talked about, I think, last week, you know, the baptism um, in particular, where there was, oh, they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus, and not in, you know, uh, of Jesus Christ, um, in verse 16 there. Um, we, I think early on, we had discussed how is that suggesting that without Christ there, um, that just in the name of the Lord Jesus, that it was in a sense, a Unitarian baptism, that they did not have the full Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was part of it. I think a lot of that is just pious conjecture, to be honest. And uh, um, we want and just as another principle of biblical interpretation, we want to move from a more difficult verse to understand to a clearer one. So when it comes to baptism, I mean, the first place we're going to go is Matthew 28, but then we're also going to look at, and we'll talk more about this shortly, texts like Romans 6, Galatians 3, 1 Peter 3, and we'll look at a couple of those in a little bit. So yeah, I suffice it to say, Pete, I think that it's um, reading into it, reading too much out of it, um, to go in a kind of charismatic or Roman Catholic uh, direction on it. Yes, Chip, uh, your hand up. Was um, Simon the Sorcerer, Simon the Magician, is this more like David Copperfield or is this like Harry Potter? Like, I mean, is he actually doing magic or is he just a trickster? No, yeah, it's more like Draco Malfoy, probably. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think it's more. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think any of our kind of modern things would, would probably, I think it's more akin to what we see among Pharaoh's stooges in Exodus, that they're doing kind of wonder working sort of stuff. So I don't imagine Simon uh, uh, Magus running around with a wand or something like that, um, or that he's making the Statue of Liberty disappear. Um, or another one of the ancient you know, wonders of the world. Um, but it's probably that he was able to do some low-level wonders that um, caused people to be impressed. Um, was he just a charlatan? Very possibly. Um, but I, I don't rule out the, the possibility, too, um, that he's, he's somehow managed to corral some supernatural powers. We've got to remember, Satan uh, and the, um, the demons are able to to wield some of these powers as well. And so I think it's, it can be tapping into some dark stuff, the dark arts. And uh, I mean, it's there in uh, the, the second commandment, right? Luther certainly thought that this was a possibility. So um, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Uh, what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not, um, what, misuse, misuse, uh, oh no, that's, but, or witchcraft, or satanic arts, it's in there. Sorry, guys, my mind's blanking at the moment. But um, so Simon's <laughs> like a a Sith Lord, and the apostles are like Jedi. We'll go with that. I mean, they're both they're both both doing supernatural things, but one is summoning dark arts or the yes. dark side of the force, and yeah. the apostles are using the good side of the force. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's good. Yeah, we should note uh, this week was Chip May Day, May the fourth. As uh, Chip is 
May the 4th. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. yes. yep. Also, Star Wars Day. So you can tell that that's still in there. Um, Anne points out, thank you, Anne. So you not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by snake. Thank you, dear. <laughs> Makes me feel better. All right. Yes, well, I'll take one more, then we'll go on. Go ahead, Pete. So I, I just wanted to return, although I think it applies to what Chip was just talking about, too, with respect to uh, those satanic arts, but also the previous discussion about um, baptism in Jesus' name and baptism in the Holy Spirit. I've uh, frequently uh, leaned upon that famous Lutheran hermeneutic, we don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, I've, there's uh, things like this where we just, we can't say more than we, than we really know. And that's why, again, it's so important to lean on the clear and unequivocal verses. Um, you just don't want to hang your hat on, on verses that are ambiguous or unclear. That's not the source of our, uh, where we really want to be establishing doctrine or, or core Christian teaching. So, good. A text without a context is a pretext. Ooh, I like that. A text without a context is a pretext. Yeah, I wish it was original, but it's not. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> All right, let's go on now to the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We're picking up at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So a couple of things about this guy, first of all. Um, so he's, in all likelihood, he is a, uh, what was sometimes called a fear of God, a Gentile worshiper, evidently. He, I mean, he's, he's obviously not a, a Jewish uh, by background or ethnicity, but evidently he's come to believe in the God of Israel and was making pilgrimage to Jerusalem, okay? Um, and the fact that he's a eunuch, um, we're most familiar with a certain uh, understanding of eunuchs that going back to, I mean, this is way in Old Testament times, a eunuch was basically a castrated servant in a royal house, and part of the reason he was castrated is because he would be overseeing the um, the king's harem, and so this was a way to ensure that he didn't have any issues with his servants, and they would become eunuchs. But later, that comes to be a term just for servants in the royal court, and they weren't necessarily castrated, okay? And in, in many cases, they could even be a very high-ranking servant or official, as it seems to be in this guy's case. All right. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. All right, we'll pause there. Um, so first of all, let me just share with you a, a simple map um, that I found on the World Wide Web, uh, which helps to help us to orient ourselves here. So um, you, you had um, Philip, and you've got Samaria there, and Jerusalem, and now he's been called down to the south, the road to Gaza, down here, and to sometimes called the desert road or a desert or deserted place, uh, making his way down there. And this is where Philip comes across uh, the Ethiopian. All right. 
Um, so many things. Okay, so number four on your handout then. Philip finds himself evangelizing the ends of the earth. The ends yeah. of the earth. Now you remember in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus had said and made this promise to, uh, to the disciples. Somebody's mic is acting up. Anybody know which one that is? I will mute you with all, with all respect. That's a question. I'll do it right now. All right. It's gone better now. All right. So at the beginning of Acts, Acts 1, verse 8, um, when Jesus had said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we had noted at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 that this persecution pushes out the disciples and continues the fulfillment of that promise of the Lord. You saw in verse 1 of chapter 8, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So we see how they were um, uh, beginning to fulfill this promise of the Lord that, as he had said, now they are going to be pushing out and evangelizing Judea and Samaria. But here we really get a foretaste of the ends of the earth as well. See, because Ethiopia, or as it was known in the Old Testament, Cush, was viewed as the, the ends of the earth. So Psalm 68, nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God, or Ethiopia. And again, Zephaniah 3.10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And a, uh, a line from the Odyssey, the very beginning of the Odyssey, Poseidon had gone to visit the Ethiopians worlds away. Ethiopians off at the farthest limits of mankind. So uh, Ethiopia is, was viewed as, um, as being kind of the ends of the earth in a sense. And so um, by, uh, by having this, this evangelism, evangelizing of the Ethiopian eunuch, it's also another um, taste of how this promise is being fulfilled of the Lord, that now it's going, um, it's going also to the Ethiopians. Okay, Anne has a question. Um, is your question, Anne, the one that you put in the chat? Yeah. Um, so where did he get his hands on a scroll of Isaiah? Yeah, so he's not just reading his Gideon Bible, right? Because the Gideon Bible doesn't have the Old Testament. So clearly it wasn't a Gideon Bible. No. Um, he, is, he would have had a scroll. So what that tells us is that this is a man of some means. So these were not easy to come by. Often they, there was only one set of scrolls for a synagogue. So basically a whole worshiping community um, would just have one. And so the fact that uh, this eunuch has one tells us he was probably a person of means. And I don't know, did he pick this one up at the temple gift shop after he was in Jerusalem? I'm not sure exactly where, where he got it. Um, but uh, yeah, it does tell us that this, this would have been uh, a pretty well-to-do guy that he has. it. Chip asks, how far is Ethiopia from where he met Philip? Yeah, the duty-free shop, exactly. This is, this is a, a long way off from, uh, so Ethiopia is obviously on a different continent, first of all. Um, it's down um, south off of the, the Nile in Africa. So this is a significant distance away that this man came. Um, it's suggested that perhaps it was during the diaspora, the, the spreading of the Jews, that Ethiopia first became evangelized. And the Ethiopians themselves, the Ethiopian Christians, 
um, not surprisingly, they date their own um, conversion coming to faith to this Ethiopian, that he would um, go, that he would return to Ethiopia and essentially become a traveling evangelist or missionary, and that through his witness, it would basically start the church in Ethiopia. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there, but, um, you know, we don't have a whole lot of, of history on, on this guy, but suffice it to say, Ethiopia was viewed as being exotic, um, being exotic people, Gentiles, also because of, of his skin. So there was, no, there was not a lot of, of dark-skinned folks in um, Greece and in uh, Palestine. And so that also would have made him a source of, um, of, of wonder, really, to the Jews and to the, and to the Greeks. Okay, I see a hand from Hans over there. Unmute yourself, sir, and uh, let us know your question. Yeah, can you tell us who Philip actually is? Because this is not the apostle. Right. This is, is this the same one as uh, the deacon? Yes, right. Or is it another one, you know, known as the Philip Evangelist or whatever? Yes, right. Good question. So um, this, by, by all accounts, what we can tell from, from the context here, Philip is probably the Philip of the deacon Philip from um, chapter 6, verse 5. So um, it said, they said, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And so when it speaks of Philip here in chapter 8, the most natural assumption is that this is the Philip deacon, not the Philip the apostle. Okay, so there was a Philip among the apostles. Um, I don't think that there's something here that tells us unequivocally that it is. But just looking at the nearest context, I believe that it's, it's Philip the, the deacon. Good, good question. Um, Patrice asks, was this close to Azotus or Azotus on the road to Caesarea, verse 46? Um, I don't have a, so I can show you again on the, on the map, I think. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite, I should have a, a larger map. So Caesarea was further to the north of Jerusalem by about 20 miles, if my memory serves, or 25 miles. So um, the fact that uh, down the Gaza and Azotus was southwest of Jerusalem, I mean, I would just ballpark and say we're probably looking at 40 to 50 miles um, from uh, down that area up to Caesarea where Philip ultimately lands and where he'll make his ministry. And we, we will encounter Philip again later in the book of Acts, about 20 years later. He settled down and carried out a ministry in, in Caesarea. Um, but uh, yeah, Philip, Philip was getting around. He, you know, he, 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 the, he was going where the, where the Lord sent him, which I think is a, a significant thing for us to observe here, that he's following the leading of, of the Lord. All right. Um, the other thing that stands out to me um, from these first few verses of the story, um, number five on your handout, that for the fullness of faith, we need guides. We need guides. So, you know, you have this question, this rhetorical question from uh, the, the Ethiopian, where he said, you know, Philip asks him if he understands what he's reading is, how can I, unless someone guides me? Um, it's interesting, the Ethiopian uses the same word that Jesus uses in John 16, where he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. 
And what I think this is suggesting is that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate guide, right? What he needs, what the Ethiopian needs, what all of us need is the power of the Holy Spirit in order to illumine our understanding of God's word and to the truth of the gospel. But that we are instruments of the work of the Spirit so that while the Spirit can work through whatever means he pleases, as Jesus says in John 3, he blows where he, you know, the Spirit listeth where he, where he wisheth, or however the King James puts it, but he blows where he pleases. Um, he typically works through his witnesses, through you and me. We become the instruments and channels of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we become those guides who are able to draw and lead others into the good news. And this is what Paul speaks of in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So while God can reveal himself in any way that he pleases, he chooses to reveal himself through the revealed word spoken through other people, through fellow guides who are able to guide others into the way of truth, into the, the good news of God. And, you know, I think this is important for us to recognize, and especially on a day like uh, Mother's Day, how what a blessing it is to have pious parents and how many of us are able to attribute to our, our parents, to dads, but off, often, and this is uh, not only a biblical reality, you see it with Timothy and his mother uh, Lois and grandmother Eunice, or vice versa, I can't remember which is which, um, but it's a sociological reality as well, that more often than not, it's moms who, uh, you know, at their knee are imparting the faith to their children. And I'm grateful for my mom, for Patrice, for, um, you know, bringing me to church and teaching me um, God's truth from the time when I was very young, even when I didn't want to go to Sunday school. <laughs> very clearly, I had no desire to go to Sunday school at, at St. Matthew Lutheran in Wald Lake. Um, but uh, still, we were there each and every week at Sunday school and at, at church. And uh, we need those guides. We need those, those people in our lives who are going to lead others, grandparents as well. And uh, I think that this passage just um, testifies to that, that truth that we all know so well. All right. Um, and uh, as Pete points out as well, it also underscores the importance of the body of Christ. Absolutely. Like this is what we need other people. We need one another to help to draw us and to teach us and to lead us into, into uh, the, the truth of God's word. Um, Jake Emery wants to know about the missing verse, chapter eight, verse 37. Okay, Jake, we're going to get there in a few minutes. I thought we'd go a little bit longer today. If you guys are okay with that, if you need to uh, sign off, feel free to do so. But I want to um, get through this whole uh, um, story here. Grace is shaking her head. No, Grace, if you need to go, I know everybody's got a lot going on right now. I know you don't have your usual Mother's Day brunch plans, okay? So yeah. <laughs> you just got to... It's Mother's Day, dude, so... Okay, know, don't push it. Push your luck here. That's right. All right, well, let, let, me, uh, let me continue on here. So um, picking up with verse 32. Now, the passage of the scripture that he, the Ethiopian, was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, 
About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and Philip went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Samaria. All right, a lot going on here. Number six on your handout, Philip reads backwards from Isaiah 53. So this is something that we've talked about again and again through the book of Acts, how they use, how the Christians use for their proclamation what we call the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They, their scriptures were the Old Testament. So they're using these passages and scriptures from the Old Testament. Now, of course, in this case, this is what the, the guy was reading. And, you know, frankly, it was kind of a softball for Philip. I mean, he didn't give him something from like Ezekiel or something. He gave him Isaiah 53. No, but Philip does a great job starting from this passage. Um, Isaiah 53, one of the most famous prophecies from the Old Testament. And um, right before the verses that were quoted there, you have Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So uh, Philip starts from this passage preaching Jesus. And this is what, just the same approach that Jesus himself took in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. No doubt. Um, Jesus had passed on the same tutelage to the disciples, and now the disciples are following in his footsteps, having that same MO, that same modus operandi. We're beginning with this passage. Philip then preaches Jesus. And this is an interesting case where the question of the Ethiopian continues to be a source of modern debate, which is to say, who is Isaiah referring to in this mysterious? enigmatic servant of not only Isaiah 53, but also Isaiah 51, um, 40, 41, or 42, and elsewhere in especially Isaiah 40 to 55, there's this servant character. And the, the possible answers to the Ethiopians question, there are at least three, which are still, it's still a live debate, especially, I mean, among critical scholars. Um, so the first answer is that it's Isaiah himself, that the prophet is that servant. Second answer is that it's the people of Israel. The people of Israel um, is the, the servant, kind of the personification of Israel. And the third answer, that it's the Messiah. Okay? Um, when Isaiah first wrote it, the understanding was probably number two, that the servant was a personification of Israel. But it was also no doubt pointing forward as a prophecy and promise of the Messiah. And needless to say, for us as believing Christians, when we read that, we read it, as Philip read it, as a word pointing forward to Christ. Now, critical scholars still today, which is to say people who don't want to take the scripture at face value, will say, no, this is really talking about Isaiah. It's a self-referential prophecy 
where he's he's talking about himself and it's like dude just read the text here uh, as philip interprets it this is the authoritative interpretation it's about jesus and that's why we're also able to read that and see yes this is this is talking about the about the lord okay um chip asks or comments there's a scene from the chosen that has nicodemus going with number two israel yeah that's right and uh i've already commended this to you before um that uh uh the chosen which you can view on youtube or you can get the app there's a lot of ways that you can view it now it's really just a tremendous show and it does really cool work with nicodemus in particular and yeah nicodemus um interprets it as israel and that would have been probably the still the reigning interpretation up until perhaps even up until the the time of jesus so um okay i want to to press on now to this um baptism comment here and it'll get us to jake's question about what happens to this missing verse so um philip preaches the gospel to him points him about jesus and then verse 36 as they were going along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said see here's water what prevents me from being baptized um so this is interesting number seven i have on your handout baptism is part and parcel of the good news so what this suggests um the the ethiopians comment here's water what prevents me from being baptized suggests to us that as part of philip's proclamation he includes baptism the baptism is not just some you know uh, value added addition to the, the good news this is part and parcel of the proclamation where he probably proclaimed to him about jesus that he is the messiah that he has come he has risen from the dead and that you ethiopian eunuch guy you can receive that forgiveness of sins and be joined to christ through the gift of holy baptism we get an idea of what that proclamation might have sounded like from peter in acts chapter 2 when he says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit or as paul would have said it later in galatians 3 as many of you as are baptized into christ jesus have put on christ and this too would have been significant for the ethiopian there's neither jew nor greek there's neither slave nor free there's no male and female for you are all one in christ jesus for this ethiopian as not only a gentile but also as a eunuch um depending on how uh what to say how strictly we're to understand his his eunuchdom or eunuch i don't know um he would have not been included among uh, he would not have received all the privileges of the people of god but now to recognize as philip would have announced to him you christ came for you this mission is has his redemption is not just for the jews for gentile as well for you ethiopian you receive this gift through holy baptism peter puts it even more explicitly in first peter 3 baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ all that said this passage gets pointed to by um sometimes by folks who do not subscribe to the practice of infant baptism or um what we call baptismal regeneration that is that through holy baptism sins actually are forgiven you actually are reborn and made a member of the people of god there are um, so, this is sometimes pointed to by some christians as a proof text against what we would believe about baptism why is that and the reason is as jake asks about 
a verse which in many of our Bibles is not even there. So if you look more closely at your scripture, notice we, we cited verse 36, and then look at what the next verse is, verse 38. So what happened to the vanishing verse? Um, in most um, Bibles, there's probably a footnote at the end of verse 36. And the footnote, um, my footnote has this. It says, some manuscripts add all or most, most of verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right, two things to point out here. First of all, um, the reason that this has been excised from uh, many modern translations, but not the King James, is that this is uh, a line that was added in subsequent centuries and included in the, the family of manuscripts known as the Textus Receptus. Okay, now, You're not going to be tested on this later, but just... To, to give you some of the context, context. the Textus Receptus was a, uh, uh, a family of manuscripts dating to, if I'm not mistaken, the fourth century, okay? It's by and large a good text, but it, but it has some later emendations and additions to, to the biblical text. They're not, um, uh, they're, they're not bad per se, but they were not part of the original text. Another really classic example is in 1 John chapter 4 or 5, where um, in the Textus Receptus, it has this really explicit evocation of the Trinity, um, that we believe in the Word, the, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, or something like that. Um, as lovely as that would be to have that explicit Trinitarian proof text, it wasn't part of the original text. It was added later as part of this Textus Receptus. Why does that matter? Because the Textus Receptus was the exclusive basis for the King James translation. And this is why when you find a, uh, a variation from the King James to other translations, whether it be the ESV, the NRSV, the NIV, um, this is why. Because the King James was based on a, a manuscript family that differs from what other modern translations are using and what, um, according to the textual criticism, would have been the, uh, the most likely original text. So um, what, do, what do we mean when we say original? So the, the whole field of textual criticism um, is practiced by um, uh, not, not only, we'd say, more liberal Christians, but by uh, God-fearing believers across the board. The idea is we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts, and the field of, new te of textual criticism is trying to um, assimilate and discern um, by putting all of these manuscripts together what would have been the original text. So we don't have one, uh, what are sometimes called the autographs, or like we don't have like the original copy of Acts per se that Luke wrote. Okay, What we have are all of these manuscripts and trying to, to piece them together where they are all, you know, uh, like 98% or 99% the same, but there will be little changes, little differences, and it's trying to assimilate them and to discern and determine what is most likely to have been the original text. That's the, that's the job and goal of textual criticism. One of the most basic questions that textual criticism is going to ask is, what is the date that we can discern or determine um, that this manuscript family comes from, this manuscript, this family? Um, it's not always an exact science, but in some cases we have a better handle on it than others. 
In this case, the Textus Receptus, it's a good manuscript family, but as I say, it's a later, it's a later text dating to the third or fourth century. In which case, um, we're going to want to use that, but it, um, in order to get the clearest sense of what the original likely would have said, um, if, if it has deviations from other earlier manuscripts, we're going to, to lean on those earlier manuscripts. And that's why um, most translations are going, not going to include this verse 37, recognizing it as, in all likelihood, a later um, addition to, to the text. All right, that's a long-winded explanation, probably way more than you wanted to know, but there it is. Okay, Ann, you've got your hand up. Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. Um, so um, why do we even make verse 38 verse 38 if just to make it um, simpler across the board for? Yeah, exactly. So this is, you know, um, rather than adjusting every, every Bible ever after, you know, uh, the numbering was there with verse 37. And so um, they will do something like this. And there's other examples of this as well. Um, Top of my head, I mean, John 8 verses 1 through 11 is the um, another famous example, but there's a, another couple examples where there's a verse. Oh, in Matthew, um, so if you look at Matthew 18, uh, real quick, just flip there. Matthew 18, let's see, um, verse 10, um, Jesus is speaking, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's verse 10. Now, in my translation, it then jumps to verse 12. And you'll see a footnote after verse 10, which says some manuscripts add verse 11, um, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. And here you have the same, the same uh, reasoning as with uh, um, Acts 8.37. Uh, Mark 16, um, Stephen Karen point out, is another, uh, another one when it comes to this um, textual criticism. We, we could and probably should do a whole Bible study just on textual criticism because it's really fascinating and it's really a, a discipline to give thanks to God for, that there's people who are, are, are culling all of these manuscripts and getting us as close as possible to what the actual hand of Luke or Paul or Peter um, would have written. And who knows? I mean, we may yet uncover one of those original autograph manuscripts. So, Chip, go ahead. Up, oh, Chip, you're still muted. There you go. Um, are you? Um, are they consistent? In like we we're reading the NIV or the. RSV and not using the, the Texas Receptus, or is there something about this particular verse that is uh, her, heretical or not theologically accurate? Well, it's not, and it's not even that it's heretical or, or that it's inaccurate per se. Like that verse from 1 John 5, um, we wouldn't say that that is heretical by any means. In fact, it's, it's very orthodox. Um, it's just that it in all likelihood was not part of the original text just like the story in John 8 as well of the um, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. In all likelihood, that was not in John's original text. Does that mean that it gives us a false impression of Jesus or anything? No, I think it's, I, I think it's sound theology and everything like that. Um, but it was, um, but it was probably not part of the text. The key thing is that if these verses are just in that Textus Receptus, that's a pretty good indicator that, um, 
that it was not uh, original to the to the text. Now these are different than like the Gnostic Gospels. Yes, exactly. So again, this is not this is not suggesting that these are um, yeah that this is somehow um, her heretical and this is different from so you have like Gnostic Gospels, the so-called Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, and that's a totally um, different thing. So this is really just as part of the biblical text determining um, what what ought to have been included, what was included as part of the, the first verse. Um, the Emery's asked, was this a change after location of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So the Dead Sea Scrolls um, primarily have Old Testament texts and scrolls. Um, so this would, uh, I don't believe that this was um, a change that was made or a discovery that was made with the, that set of manuscripts. Um, yeah, good question. Um, is, um, um, I, I remember Paul Meyer teaching on the fact that the validity of our scriptures is enhanced by the fact that we have all these different manuscripts, yes. as opposed to like, they're, they're easy to pick on, but like the Book of Mormon or the, or the Mormon scripture is like one person wrote it, no other man, you know, and so, you know, it, it's easy maybe to criticize like oh you've all these manuscripts who knows which is the right the right one but you have all of them and they're like 98 percent similar right. and even, you know even the different variations don't necessarily point to it be it being inaccurate right it just means you know so um anyways yep that's right no i mean it's uh and there was a really good documentary um that came out a couple of years ago fragments of truth um if you guys are able to um track this down i'll see if i can find it Fragments of Truth, um, and it, it gets in depth into um, the the work of textual criticism and why we can be so confident in our in our scriptures and in the in the manuscripts. All right, um, good conversation there. Let me um, kind of tie a bow on this passage. Well, and that whole thing too about that verse and why you know folks who will point to this. So folks who do use the King James. Uh, or King James exclusively, may point to that verse 37, say, it says right here, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized, and use that as a proof text to say, therefore, you know, infants shouldn't be baptized, or until you reach an age where you're able to confess it, and uh, would say, well, look, um, whether or not you can um, establish that teaching from other places is probably not a verse you want to try and establish that from, and indeed that uh, um, baptism itself, you know, is God giving us, gives us what we need in order to believe in him. So anyway, okay. I want to give just some closing concluding thoughts on um, how this story of Philip and the Ethiopian really gives us some great lessons in, in witnessing. So this is last, last page on your handout. Five things briefly here. So one, just to keep your eyes open to the Spirit's leading. Be ready to, to recognize and respond to what how the Spirit leads you and to be open to those nudges of the Holy Spirit sometimes of, hey, maybe there's that person that you've been thinking, I, I ought to give them a call or reach out to them. And I'm sure that um, many, if not all of you, can give examples in your own life of when that's happened, when you just kind of had this intuitive sense like, you know what, I really should talk to that person or you know give that phone call or whatever it might be. And the Lord uses that. And uh, 
we've, I've learned a lot from him. We've talked about him here at Trinity a, a fair bit. Pastor Greg Finke in his book, Joining Jesus on His Mission. He says, you know, each and every day, just start with that prayer to say, Lord, open my eyes to recognize and respond to what you are up to in my life. And uh, just to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in that way. The second thing, um, just a very practical thing, opening with questions, not answers. You know, P, uh, Philip, when he approaches the Ethiopian, he asks him, do you understand what you are reading? He starts with a question. Um, he has that kind of curiosity. And he's going to give answers. He's going to give a bold and confident witness. But uh, it's, just, it's much more effective in, in many times when you're engaging with someone, having the spiritual conversations, to start it with a question. Give them opportunity to share their story. What are, their, what are the things that they're working through and, and wondering about? And then along with that, number three, begin from where they are. So the text that uh, the guy was reading was Isaiah 53 says, Philip, beginning from this scripture. So Philip doesn't say, okay, that's really interesting, but let me start with Genesis 1, okay? You know, um, he starts with where he is. And this maybe can be more challenging in some cases, um, you know, depending on what text that somebody's struggling with. But I think just to extrapolate from that as a more general kind of principle, you start with where somebody is at. And so I think right now, you think of how many people are struggling with loneliness or with a lack of hope, to go to uh, and to announce the good news to them as how Christ is the source of our hope, and that in him we need not uh, be alone, that we are um, always, that he promises he is with us always to the end of the age. We have the Holy Spirit, the gift of, of the church, things that you know, we talked about in the sermon today. So begin from where they are. Fourth, lead them to the waters. And um, baptism really ought to be Again, part and parcel of our proclamation and our witness of pointing people to the gift of holy baptism. As Lutherans, we don't do altar calls, but we might do font calls, just to say we summon people to be baptized, repent and be baptized, and not to be um, uh, uh, you know, ashamed of that, but to, to summon people to those saving waters. And then fifth, and most importantly, the Lord does the work. We get to participate. It's not that we go before the Lord. He goes before us. God had clearly already been preparing this Ethiopian for the conversation that he was going to have with Philip. And so this, is, again, is a finky thing. It's not that we go for the Lord. It's that we get to go with him. He is, he's already um, preparing the soils, preparing people to hear the good news. We simply get invited into that. All right, guys, we've gone super long today, and I, I joked about it before, but I really uh, don't want to um, hold back your Mother's Day celebrations or just Mother's Day resting today. Um, God bless all you moms. Thankful uh, for you, and, and thanks for joining us today. So look forward to seeing you again soon. And you Trinity folks, remember that uh, we've got a town hall, virtual town hall over Zoom like this on Wednesday at 7. So I hope that you can uh, join us for that as well. But God bless you guys, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.